0: Welcome to Golf on the Fringe, a podcast researched, written, and narrated by Connor T. Lewis and sponsored by the Society of Golf Historians. Golf on the Fringe is a collection of small stories on what I believe to be big topics, from forgotten champions to stolen majors. Golf on the Fringe are the stories lost to history. Chapter 1. An Old Soul. Born on August 12, 1891, McDermott and golf were meant to be together. Whether he was just an old soul, or perhaps he copied the swing of Walter Reynolds, the professional edronomic, McDermott's swing was very much vintage, even for the 1900s. His swing was of the St. Andrews style, which dated back before the days of old Tom Morris. It was a round-the-body, flat swing, that was well below the swing plane that Ben Hogan popularized in the 1950s. Johnny's attraction to golf was stronger than the force of gravity, which is likely why, rather than keeping his feet on the ground, as a student of West Philadelphia High School, he decided to drop out and seek out a life in golf. Like many before and many after, his first entry was caddying, and Johnny took up the bag at many courses in the Philadelphia area, but he was best known as a caddy at Aronimic. It didn't take long for Johnny McDermott's talents to exceed his caddying duties, and in his later years, Johnny had found the employment as a golf professional at Merchantville Country Club in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Chapter 2. 1909, A Taste of Championship Golf At the age of 17, Johnny McDermott entered the 1909 U.S. Open at Englewood Golf Club. In the field of 79 players, McDermott finished 49th. Johnny McDermott had made his championship debut. He had his first taste of championship golf, and he wanted more, much more. Not long after his U.S. Open debut, Johnny McDermott made the move to his final professional job, Atlantic City Country Club, which only six years earlier had been the birthplace for the term birdie. It was at Atlantic City Country Club that McDermott forged his championship skills, his practice sessions were legendary, hitting ball after ball, one high, one low, one draw, one fade. McDermott demanded that his ball bend to his will. His swing may have been old-fashioned in 1910, but his championship steel was hardening. If he couldn't outswing you, he would certainly outwork you. So the question remains, how good of a ball striker was Johnny McDermott? Well, if you ask Jack Burke Sr., he once said of his ball striking, quote, With an iron, McDermott was a magician. He kitted a few dozen balls with an iron, and you could gather them up simply by folding up the newspaper he was using as a target. His accuracy was legendary. Unquote. Chapter 3. 1910. The Beginning. The first test of Johnny McDermott's game came at the 1910 Philadelphia Open. McDermott saw the event as a warm-up for the 1910 U.S. Open at Philadelphia Cricket Club. All of his sacrifices of time and effort for his game had paid off, and McDermott walked away with his first official victory. McDermott beat Willie Anderson, the four-time U.S. Open champion, by a single shot. It was just the shot in the arm that McDermott needed. Just weeks later, the real test was at hand. Johnny McDermott would face off against the best golfers, America had to offer. And when I say America, I really mean the English and Scottish immigrants who brought their talents to America. Key of all of them was Willie Anderson, who had already won the 1901, 1903, 1904, and 1905 U.S. Opens. And other than the U.S. Open in 1900, Willie Anderson never finished worse than fifth place in a U.S. Open. Anderson also won the 1902, 1904, 1908, and 1909 Western Opens, back when the Western Golf Association was a ruling body in the game of golf. Now at the age of 18, Johnny McDermott would have his chance to test his game against the best of the best in America. After the first round, McDermott found himself two strokes out of the lead and tied with the legendary Willie Anderson. After round two... McDermott's stellar play moved him up to a tie for second place and two strokes between, behind 1906 U.S. Open champion Alex Smith. In the third round, McDermott remained steady as many of the leading scores faltered. And when the sun hit the middle of the sky and the third round had settled, Johnny McDermott, the teenage dropout, a mailman's son, had the third round lead of the 1910 U.S. Open. U.S. Open's final two rounds back then were settled on the same day. Upon retiring from the third round and having about 30 minutes to savor the taste of the U.S. Open lead, and if he was lucky, a sandwich, Johnny McDermott and the rest of the U.S. Open field were thrown back into action to determine who would be the U.S. Open champion of 1910. To Johnny's credit, he was steady, and he was determined, and it took two of the best rounds in the Italian tournament to catch him. They were recorded by two brothers, nonetheless, Alex Smith, already a U.S. Open champion, and his brother, McDonald Smith. When the dust settled and the sun was near setting, on what they thought would be the final round, Johnny McDermott found himself in a three-way tie with the Smith brothers. It was only the third playoff in U.S. Open history, and it was the first time in major championship history that two brothers had made a playoff. Had the playoff started the next day, which would have been Sunday, Who knows what may have happened, but with an extra day off and a Monday start, the veteran and former U.S. Open champion seized the day. Alex Smith fired one of the best rounds of the championship and beat young Johnny McDermott by four strokes and Alex's brother, McDonald Smith, by six, claiming his second U.S. Open in four years. Upon winning the U.S. Open, Alex Smith turned to the young McDermott and tried to console him. Hard luck, kid, he said. McDermott playfully responded, I'll get you next year, you big tramp. A gutsy and perhaps immature comment for an 18-year-old, but McDermott was never one to keep his words in his mouth for long. His brashness did not cost him anything in 1910. In later years, it would cost him almost everything. Chapter 4, 1911, A Date with History there is no record of how McDermott took the playoff loss, whether he reveled in the close call and his championship breakthrough, or did he sink into an inner place of self determination and perhaps dread. My guess, it was the latter. What we do know is that McDermott pushed himself even harder and to a point of breaking in his preparation for the 1911 season. Again, as a warm up for the 1911 U.S. Open, Johnny McDermott repeated as the 1911 Philadelphia Open champion. The train ride to Chicago was a long one, but it gave Johnny McDermott the time to consider a plan for the championship. If he could just play his regular, steady game, he would have a chance at winning the 1911 U.S. Open at the famed Chicago Golf Club. The Chicago Golf Club in 1911 would be unrecognizable as the course we know today. It was designed by Charles Blair MacDonald and opened for play in 1895 becoming what many people believe to be the first 18-hole golf course in the United States. However, the Chicago Golf Club by 1911 may have been considered dated. 1911 was a pivotal year in American golf course architecture, as the ideas of Charles Blair MacDonald were starting to take shape. It was in 1911 that Charles Blair MacDonald introduced the world to National Golf Links of America, which effectively changed the way Americans saw golf courses. The shallow bunkers with their vertical faces protruding from the fairways were a thing of the past, and Chicago Golf Club was one of the last bastions to make the change, doing so in the mid-1920s under the artful eye of C.B. McDonald's protege, Seth Rayner. This 1911 Chicago Golf Club would be well-suited for the St. Andrews-swinging Johnny McDermott. It was a course that was frozen in time from the early days of golf in America. If the course was built for the 19-year-old Johnny McDermott, the first round gave us no indication. Johnny started off the day by hitting two of his first two tee shots out of bounds, ended up shooting an 81, which was six strokes off the 1907 U.S. Open champions Alec Ross, 75. If the opening blunder caused McDermott to worry, we don't know. But his response in the second round of play was nothing less than masterful, improving his score by nine strokes and carding a 71 which was incredibly low back in 1911. McDermott's finished the second round four strokes off the lead, which was held by Alec Ross and the 1908 U.S. Open winner Fred McLeod. The third round of play started in the morning of June 24, 1911. McDermott steadied himself for the 36-hole final day and put himself in position by carding a one under 675. This time, it was Alec Ross who folded under the championship pressure, carding an 81, while Fred McLeod survived some tough patches, but settled into a third-round score of even par 76. When the morning round had concluded, Fred McLeod held a three-stroke lead over Johnny McDermott and England's Gilbert Nichols. The fourth round was a brutal one for the leaders at the top of the board. Gilbert Nichols' round was a train wreck, Fred McLeod did not fare too much better recording a tournament-worst 83 or 7 over par to shoot himself out of contention. Johnny McDermott fought his entire fourth round, teetering between the good and the disastrous, finishing with a 79, plus 3, leaving the door open for two players who started the day four strokes back to catch him. And catch him they did. Johnny McDermott, for the second straight year, would be in a three-man, 18-hole playoff for the U.S. Open Championship. This time, he would face off against Mike Brady and George Simpson. Much like 1910, the players had to wait two days to resume play for the U.S. Open Championship. Perhaps one year removed, and one year the more wise, Johnny McDermott put the experience to work. In another 18-hole playoff, Johnny would play side-by-side with the men trying to fight him for the title. And few people in the world had more fight in him than Johnny McDermott. He started off by losing the first hole, but after the second, he had tied both players, and by the fifth, he would hold the lead and never let it go again. He beat Mike Brady by two strokes and George Simpson by four, becoming the 1911 U.S. Open champion. Johnny's prize money was $300, equivalent to roughly $7,700 today. The 1911 U.S. Open was historical in so many ways. With McDermott's victory, the 19-year-old became the youngest winner of the U.S. Open in the history of our game, and the second youngest major champion in the history of our game, second only to young Tom Morris. And after 16 years of U.S. Open championships, Johnny McDermott became the first U.S. born U.S. Open champion. Chapter 5, 1912, The Defending Champion. Many golfers rest upon winning a major championship, but rest was not a word that Johnny McDermott was familiar with. Why rest on your laurels when you can outwork the field and make history? Johnny was more determined than ever to outwork the field and take away any doubts as to who was the best golfer in the United States, dare say it, the world. That was now the 20-year-old's mindset going into the 1912 U.S. Open as the defending champion. He was always confident, which put some people off, and often brash. But now, more than ever, Johnny had something he didn't have before. He knew he was the champion, and he all but dared people to try to take it from him. In today's world, it's hard to say who he might have been compared to, but it might not be a stretch to say that he had a chip on his shoulder like Patrick Reed. The 1912 U.S. Open was held at the Country Club of Buffalo in Amherst, New York, a course that anyone can play today as is now a public golf course named Grover Cleveland and owned by Erie County. It's hard to imagine at the age of 20 that anyone would be considered a major championship veteran. But in the previous two years, McDermott had played in two U.S. Open playoffs and was coming into Buffalo the defending champion. The event seemed to be a perfect match for his temperament, Grueling and grinding seemed to go hand in hand, and nobody could grind through a round better than McDermott. He also seemed to understand at a very early age that you don't win the U.S. Open on the first day, but if you aren't careful, you can lose it. The first round of the 1912 U.S. Open took place on the morning of August 1st, and McDermott stuck to his game plan. His goal was never to set the course on fire the goal was to shoot a respectable score and gauge the results as they came. McDermott did just that, firing firing an even par 74, which tied him for sixth place and two strokes off the lead of three players, one of which McDermott was keenly aware of, Mike Brady. In the second round, the wind picked up, and so did the scores. Mike Brady did well enough to stay tied for the lead. McDermott shot plus one, but was in a position two off the lead and another familiar foe made a strong push, shooting four under par to tie the lead, the now two-time U.S. Open champion Alex Smith. The top ten on the scoreboard made it look like another British invasion, leaving only Johnny McDermott and Mike Brady as the only Americans within four shots of the lead. The third round is often known as moving day, but in the early days of golf, the third and the fourth round were played on the same day. So you would have your chance to move up or out, but by the afternoon you had to finish the tournament. Again, McDermott played his game, never pressing, never gambling. He finished the third round with an even par 74. Mike Brady, on the other hand, took some chances and they paid off. He shot a one under 73 and increased his lead on McDermott by a stroke. He lay three ahead of McDermott. The championship medal of Alex Smith was cracked when he carded a 77, or plus three for the round. There was now only one man in front of Johnny McDermott and his chance to win back-to-back U.S. Opens. With a couple of years of experience under his belt, McDermott cherished this quick break, a sandwich and a drink before heading back to the final round of the U.S. Open. The three previous rounds were thrown to the wind, and Johnny McDermott decided to play this round as if he were playing the playoff from the year before, gritting his teeth and fighting for every stroke like there was no tomorrow. Whether it was his talent or his gritty edge, McDermott did something that no golfer had ever done in a U.S. Open. He finished all four rounds under par, two under for the tournament, and claimed his second U.S. Open title. With back-to-back championships, McDermott became only the second golfer in the history to achieve that feat, the first being the unheralded Willie Anderson. Chapter 6. 1913, A Bitter Victory In the history of the U.S. Open, only seven players have won back-to-back U.S. Opens. Most recently, Brooks Kepka achieved that very feat in 2017 and 2018. The 1912 U.S. Open should have solidified the legacy of Johnny McDermott around the world. But at the very beginning of 1913, the publication, The American Golfer, printed an article by a British golf writer in which he wrote, As to the much-argued question of the relative merits of British and American players, I am sure that we, the United Kingdom, are appreciatively better than their best. I believe that we shall always be so because Americans have to play the game under inferior conditions and as such can hardly permit their developing the finer shades of skill. The Americans play a rather plainer game than we do. The country may and probably will produce an occasional golfing phenomenon, and it may win our championship again, but it will never be superior to us at golf. It would have been virtually impossible for Johnny McDermott to have not taken that last comment personally. The country may, future tense, and probably will produce an occasional golfing phenomenon. It's not hard to imagine Johnny McDermott's emotions as the two-time reigning U.S. Open champion read that article printed in the premier golf publication of the United States, The American Golfer. 1913 would prove to be the most pivotal year in the history of golf for the United States, and it was perhaps the most defining year for the young Johnny McDermott. The year started with news that the greatest golfer in the world, and some would argue the greatest golfer that had ever lived up to that point, Harry Varden, would be setting sail to the United States to tour the country with his friend, Ted Ray, the reigning Open champion of 1912, with a plan for competing in the 1913 U.S. Open at the Country Club, in Brookline, Massachusetts. How important was Harry Varden and Ted Ray's trip to America? It was the first and only time in the history of golf. A major championship was moved back to accommodate the schedule of one player, Harry Varden. The USGA actually agreed to push the US Open back all the way to September to accommodate Varden and Ray, who would be setting sail to the United States in August of 1913. Any memory of McDermott's feats or perhaps his hopes of defending the title for the third time were buried in the press on both sides of the pond. America was in a frenzy for Harry Varden all over again. Varden's last trip to the United States in 1900 spurred the growth of the game from coast to coast like a virtual Johnny Appleseed of golf in America. Again, like years before, McDermott went to work with a chip on his shoulder. This was his chance to prove the world wrong. This was his chance to prove to the world that America could stand up to their British counterparts. In McDermott's eyes, he was the man for that task. Though neither Varden or Ray had ever scorned him, he took the words in the press as a personal affront to his game, and he attributed every word to the two visiting champions. One week after Varden and Ray arrived in America, Johnny McDermott saw his chance to prove his worth to the press, if not the foreign invaders. His opportunity came at the 1913 Shawnee Open. Was McDermott up to the task, facing off against one of the best fields he had ever played in? He was. He won the Shawnee Open, besting Harry Varden by a whopping 13 strokes and Ted Ray by 14 strokes. It was Johnny's personal vindication against the golf world who had all but forgotten about him. If you have ever had the opportunity to read the book or watch the movie, The Greatest Game Ever Played, it was here at the conclusion of the Shawnee Open, not the U.S. Open, where Johnny McDermott made his fateful comments to Varden and Ray. McDermott's post-victory comments were surely built upon the sheer weight of newspapers discounting McDermott's accomplishments over the past two years. Articles all but handing the U.S. Open trophy to Harry Varden or Ted Ray just for showing up. Articles much like that published in the January 13 issue of American Golfer. Johnny McDermott was hurt by the abandoned admiration of his own country and made a comment that today likely wouldn't even make the news, but at the time was quite controversial. These are the words he spoke upon winning the Shawnee Open. Quote, I wish Ray and Varden success, but the people of this country needn't worry or fear as to the cup going to the other side. The professional golfers are able enough to take care of the trophy and protect it, as the conditions are all in their favor, just as much as they would be in the visitors' favor on their home courses across the pond, end quote. Hardly the most horrific speech that has ever been given. No more than national pride, really but the press saw an opportunity and ran with it, fair or not. When asked about it, Varden and Ray didn't think anything of McDermott's speech, according to A.W. Tillinghast. It wasn't until a day or so later that McDermott realized that his comments had been condemned by members of the media, and even non-sports writers joined the frenzy. Johnny apologized, but that was never printed. One press outlet reported McDermott as an arrogant winner. It went on to misquote a portion of McDermott's speech, quote, we hope our foreign visitors had a good time, but we don't think they did, and we are sure they won't win our National Open. Very similar to how it was, he was quoted in the movie. Another paper reported on McDermott, quote, The Open champion, with a sneering twirl in his mouth, jumped on a chair and said the visiting English golfers might as well go back home, as their quest for the American Championship honors will likely get them nowhere in particular, end quote. McDermott was quoted just prior to the U.S. Open. I am brokenhearted over this affair. I have been horribly misquoted, and the people not cognizant of the true facts are censuring me left and right. There are no recordings of the speech, and at the heart of all these quotes, essentially, they say the same thing. I, for one, would like to believe that the paper sensationalized his comments, which was not uncommon in those days when there were no recording devices. And when there is blood in the water, The Sharks Come to Eat. In what likely seemed to be a blink of the eye, the public turned on Johnny McDermott. He was scolded by the USGA and even threatened to be disqualified from defending his title in the upcoming US Open. Those who knew him best said he was deeply hurt by the entire affair. He was young, cocky, and brash, And he made a mistake in the excitement of beating two of the best golfers on the planet. At the U.S. Open at Brookline, Johnny did not receive a hero's welcome. He was effectively persona non grata, the two-time reigning U.S. Open champion that nobody wanted to be there. The first round of play kicked off on the morning of Thursday, September 18, 1913. And Johnny McDermott did what Johnny always did at the U.S. Open. He shot the score that kept him in the middle of the action. A one-over par 74. One stroke better than Harry Varden, and three strokes better than the guy that nobody other than the locals were paying attention to. A guy by the name of Francis met. The second round took place that afternoon. And whether it was a bad patch of golf or the weight of the entire affair... Johnny McDermott posted a plus-six, score of 79, which was bested by nine strokes by Ted Ray, seven strokes by Harry Varden, and five strokes by the unknown local amateur, Francis Met. The final day of the 1913 U.S. Open had some of the worst weather the U.S. Open had in years. The bad weather likely helped Johnny McDermott, who at his heart was a grinder. But by the end of the third round, he was five strokes back of Francis Met, Harry Varden, and Ted Ray, and another unknown professional, Walter Hagen, making his first professional tournament debut, just one stroke ahead of Johnny McDermott. After a short break for food and a change of clothes, the final round of the 1913 U.S. Open had begun. Most of us know that Johnny McDermott did not make the final round charge to win the U.S. Open, but he also did not suffer the psychotic episode as portrayed in the movie, The Greatest Game Ever Played. Far from it. His final round of the final day was actually one stroke better than the leaders we met Varden and Ray, and two strokes better than the newcomer Walter Hagen's final round. Hagen would go on the next year to claim his first of 11 major championships. If you ever watched the movie or read the book, The Greatest Game That Was Ever Played, that is where Johnny McDermott's story ended in the 1913 U.S. Open. But that is not the case. Johnny McDermott had one more important role to play. He had one more gift to give, and he waited until just before the Saturday morning playoff to give it. Just as the unknown amateur Francis We Met started to make his way to the first tee to face off against two golfing legends, Johnny McDermott stepped out of the crowd and in the path of We Met. He looked We Met in the eye with that steely, steely glare. And said these few words Play your game. Pay no attention to Varden and Ray. We Met would write about that moment 10 years later. He said that it was the moment where he felt like he could win the U.S. Open and attributed his calmness to the comments made by Johnny McDermott. Unlike what you saw in the movie, Francis We Met did just what Johnny McDermott did in his previous U.S. Open he demolished the competition, beating Harry Varden by five strokes and Ted Ray by 6. It was American Golf's finest moment. As Bernard Darwin would say, David beat two Goliaths that day and changed the trajectory of American Golf forever. We Met and his victory inspired a young boy by the name of Bobby Jones in Atlanta, who later would look up to We Met as a mentor and then a friend. We Met over the course of a weekend went from a relatively unknown amateur golfer and had become our nation's hero. While we don't know what was going on in the mind of Johnny McDermott following the 1913 U.S. Open, he must have realized that his back-to-back U.S. Opens had been lost in the whirlwind of We Met's amazing upset. The comments he made to We Met or We Met's gratitude wouldn't be known for another decade. In the eyes of most Americans, McDermott was a golfer who embarrassed the United States after the Shawnee Open, and his light would never shine bright again. Following the U.S. Open, Johnny McDermott did not sneak off into the night, nor did he suffer some kind of psychotic break during the U.S. Open or just after it. Just one month following his eighth-place finish, Johnny McDermott entered the Western Open. Now, there is some debate as to whether the Western Open was a major. The one solid argument for the Western being a major championship rests between the years of 1899 and 1919, when the Western Golf Association was, in fact, a rival and ruling body for the game of golf in the United States. And the Western Open was, in fact, their national championship. Whether that makes the Western a major championship, I will leave that up to you, the listener. But what I can say for certain is that it was the second most important golf tournament in the United States in 1913. It was a huge deal. In November of 1913, Varden and Ray were scheduled to play McDermott in an exhibition match. This, as Johnny saw it, was his opportunity to win back America's hearts. But they scratched at the last minute, uh, and upon hearing the news and perhaps the idea of bearing the proverbial hatchet, the weight of the year must have been too much for Johnny to bear. As the tidal wave of 1913 came to an end, Johnny McDermott suffered from a nervous breakdown. 1913 ended with more questions than answers for McDermott. The now former two-time U.S. Open champion had embarrassed himself, and in some people's eyes, the entire country. However, McDermott was only 22 years old, and had won two U.S. Opens and a Western in a three-year span. Despite the nervous breakdown brought on by stress, the future was still ahead of McDermott, and he entered 1914 with a plan to recapture his honor and set the tone for American golf going forward. To do it, he planned an invasion of his own, traveling to a play and win the 1914 Open Championship at Prestwick. Going to the literal home of the Open Championship and taking the battle to the United Kingdom. Chapter 7. 1914. The Cost of Greatness. The 1914 Open Championship was scheduled to be held between June 18th and 19th, 1914. As was the practice of the day, all players had to qualify to get an invitation. The qualifying rounds took place the week prior to the Open Championship, on June 11th and 12th at Troon. The records of what happened next are a little fuzzy. What we do know is that the tides had turned for young Johnny McDermott. Whether it was the speech from a year ago at Shawnee, or whether he had just had a run of bad luck, Johnny McDermott missed the ferry that would have gotten him to Troon for his qualifying round for the 1914 Open Championship. By the time he arrived at Troon, qualifying play was already underway. McDermott had crossed the Atlantic Ocean for nothing. His story of redemption would be one of embarrassment. It's important to give credit to three parties in this affair. The RNA and a and clearly felt badly for McDermott and offered to bend the rules for him, to allow him to play in the qualifying rounds with a marker. McDermott, for his own part, did what he thought was right— he turned down the gracious offer, saying that it would be unfair to the other competitors. With hat in hand, McDermott set sail to America on the Kaiser Wilhelm II. But as I mentioned before, the tide had changed for young McDermott. And once out to sea, the Kaiser Wilhelm was struck by a massive cargo ship. With a large gash in its side and the hull taking on water, the passengers, including Johnny McDermott, were put into lifeboats. This incident occurred only two years and two months after the sinking of the Titanic, and the accident was still fresh in the minds of seafaring people. The Kaiser Wilhelm II did not sink to the depths of the sea, but the same cannot be said for Johnny McDermott. The incident, or perhaps stacked incidents, affected the already tightly wound McDermott. When he returned to the United States, it was said that he was a shell of the man who once seemed to be capable of winning every U.S. Open. Trying to make up for lost time, Johnny McDermott played in the 1914 U.S. Open at Midlothian Country Club in Chicago. But after his first round, he found himself behind the leader Walter Hagen by nine strokes. That disparity in the first round sank McDermott. Though he made a valiant charge, the gap was too much to make up. The 1914 U.S. Open was the coming-out party for the great Walter Hagen and for Johnny McDermott who finished 10 strokes back he tied for ninth Johnny took the train back to New Jersey and upon arriving in Atlantic City Country Club he walked through its doors and blacked out nobody knew it at the time but Johnny McDermott at the age of 23 had played his last professional match within a very short time Johnny McDermott was committed to the Pennsylvania State Hospital for the Insane in Norristown, Pennsylvania, where he would spend the rest of his life until he died 11 days before his 80th birthday. Grantland Rice was a big fan of Johnny McDermott. He believed that the psychotic break started after the events at Shawnee. He believed that the idea of being a villain was too much for McDermott to bear. Grantland Rice eulogized the end of Johnny McDermott's golf career with these words in 1915. Fame is known to be fleeting, and the olive bow is fickle growth. But even in a sport where the hero of today is too often the hobo of tomorrow, McDermott's case stands alone. Rice would continue, He had no weakness with any club, a solid temperament for the game, and at the same time was mixed with a bulldog tenacity and courage. In all of his life, he neither smoked or drank, keeping himself in a fine condition through clean life in the open. Grantland went on, at Brookline, where he had hoped to lead the charge against the British invaders, he was practically a wreck. For after the Shawnee fate turned against him with a fist of iron, outspoken criticism against his Shawnee speech born from more ignorance than studied incivility cut deeply into his pride driving him into a moody, nervous wreck. McDermott's remaining days in the sanitarium were not all dark. The hospital had a small six-hole course, and McDermott was known to play the course almost every day. And I have zero doubt that he held the course record. Who would bet against him? Over the years, his two sisters would check him out for day trips, to play golf at the local Philly courses, or to be a spectator at local golf events. Gone but not forgotten, about a decade into this stay at the sanitarium, fellow tour players raised funds for his continued treatment, and the great Walter Hagen joined McDermott to play around at the hospital's six-hole course. Upon his departure, McDermott told Hagen, Tell the boys I'm getting along just fine. One of the last stories of the life of Johnny McDermott is almost a thing of legend. At the 1971 U.S. Open at Marion, Arnold Palmer, just finishing his round, was walking into the clubhouse when he found one of the assistant professionals throwing an old man out of the clubhouse. The assistant told Palmer that the old bum was trespassing, to which Palmer replied, you're wrong. This gentleman is the oldest living U.S. Open champion, and he is my guest. Johnny McDermott would pass away six weeks later, 11 days before his 80th birthday. McDermott's story is one of glory, one of shattering records and setting the tone for America's dominance in the decades that followed. But his story has been muted by his mental illness. His legacy was stolen away from him at the prime of his career, and today he is represented in books and movies as the man who embarrassed our country... And shattered under that pressure. It is my hope that you now see Johnny McDermott through this story as a fighter, as someone to be proud of, as the youngest U.S. Open champion, as the first golfer to break par in a U.S. Open, and the first American born U.S. Open champion. Johnny's story is not a story of shame, it's a hero story. But not all heroes get a happy ending. This was the story of the champion who lost his mind. A story researched, written, and narrated by Connor T. Lewis. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of Talking Golf History, and this segment I call Golf from the Fringe.